the idea that citizenship should distinguish between the kind of inner circle of people who have access to the to the global privilege and and everybody else who doesn't that system needs to be re-examined in a very profound kind of way and i would imagine that some of these other kinds of other ideas of citizenship in which we remove the kind of tight link between territory and citizenship might provide some kind of starting point you are listening to the european pavilion a series of podcasts produced by the European Cultural Foundation. I am your host, Laure Gablier. In this series, we wish to stimulate a critical and creative debate that challenges prevailing national perspectives and inspires a culture of solidarity. How do people, institutions and the media feel about Europe? How should we imagine our future and the future of Europe? In the last episode, We discussed the model of the nation-state, and this led us to question issues of citizenship. Since the nation-state is bound to a territory, its citizens form an exclusive group with rights and benefits bestowed according to a logic of birthright. Imagining a future beyond nations first and foremost implies a shift in our approach to citizenship. Today, we meet again with our guests writer and essayist Hanadas Kupta, researcher Laha Garcia Diaz, and historian Timothy Snyder, to discuss the topic of citizenship and what it could mean for Europe. So, yeah, returning on this idea of citizenship, um, maybe I was thinking that it would be interesting also to follow perhaps like a feminist perspective on citizenship um, that actually critique the notion of citizenship itself because they say that it's based on a modern male narrative derived from the member state nationality. No? So in that sense, there are feminists like Carol Pateman, for instance, in the 90s. She discussed how the social contract implied in the modern nation state was from the start actually a sexual contract. And how, as I mentioned, our understanding of citizen nowadays is based on what she calls the citizen male. Here, if I go back to this idea of civil, political and social citizenship, for example, it established how every citizen nowadays should be equipped to enjoy her or his civil and political rights, right? So including here a decent education or good living conditions, for example. So if we think on those terms, we immediately see that the egalitarian drive that moves this idea of citizenship uh, does not make everyone the same, actually, because it even increases economic and social inequalities. Lara Garcia Diaz has a point. The current framework of citizenship tends to replicate outdated gender stereotypes that cause frictions and exclude certain groups. In this debate, for Rana Dascupta, it is also important to consider new ways of coming together that are not necessarily associated with the territory. The internet and digital platforms offer many opportunities, but as he warns us, it can also be used against our common interest. Political belonging and community affiliations are dramatically altered by, by big data, by, by social media. And so in all these kinds of ways, I suspect that through technology, um, we will find ourselves belonging to kind of non-trivial political communities, which have all kinds of things going on in them. They have law, they have money, they have, um, they have power. 
which are in parallel to the nation state and to some extent compete with the nation state. Some of these systems might be extremely politically dubious. I think many of the things that I'm talking about would, would privilege financial interests and, uh, and elite interests even more than the nation state system does currently. However, I think that um, we've got to a sort of crisis of citizenship. In order to get a sense of what is to come, we need to consider what happened in the past. I asked Timothy Snyder what we can learn from the age of empires when thinking about citizenship. Successful empires have also been buffer zones with high levels of tolerance, including freedom of worship, for instance. I mean, that's in, in a way, it's a trick question because agreeing with you that there is a history of toleration of religion in some kind of empires, that's only possible because there wasn't citizenship. I mean, that's the dilemma. In, in the Ottoman Empire, which was quite tolerant of Christianity and Judaism, um, the toleration consisted in seeing Christians and Jews as groups, but not as individuals. But the trick is, it wasn't a state of citizens, it was a state of groups. It was a state, it was a state of, of estates, we would say. And so the individual groups had a relationship with the state, but the individuals did not have a relationship with the state. And so the, the tension is that if you want to be a modern, if you want to be a modern person and say, it's not the communities, it's not the religious communities that matter, it's the individual that matters, which of course is the big argument of the French Revolution. If you say the individual has rights, that religion is not about communities, but it's about my right to have a religion, then you're suddenly in this world of citizens. You're in this world of you're in this world of states and citizens. And And in that, in that world, you just have a different set of problems. I think it's, it's a little bit unfair to the modern state to say, look back at the Ottoman Empire, because the Ottoman Empire just wasn't a modern state. Um, it didn't have to deal with individuals. It didn't collect taxes from individuals. It, it, dealt with, it dealt with larger communities, which we would find, I think, oppressive if they existed in our, in our, in our own lives. So that's the whole trick. How do you get both... How can you both think the individual is sovereign over the individual's life and have toleration over beliefs that necessarily bring individuals into, into groups, for example, religious beliefs? That's really hard. And I would, I would venture to say it verges on being impossible, as you suggest, within the realm of, of one state. I think it's only possible if states are in some kind of agreement or some, some kind of relationship with one another. In his account, Timothy Snyder highlights the difficulty of finding a balance between the collective and the particular, between public alliances and individual freedoms. However, as Rana Dasgupta points out, In order to solidify itself, the political project of the nation-state needs to permeate both the public and the intimate. The religious origins of European nation-states and the idea of Europe itself are coming back in a way that's very, very problematic for the reimagination of Europe. At a point when, and this, this comes together with race as well, race 
was for a lot of European countries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, race was the means by which national identities were solidified. So uh, one of the problems in the history of the nation state in Europe is a class problem. The majority of the country for a long time did not feel implicated or involved in the national idea, which was a, an aristocratic idea, it benefited elites, etc. And with the industrial age, one of the ways that working classes become incorporated into the nation state is through the idea of race, that we are different in terms of class, even in terms of the language we speak, because elites often spoke different languages, but we are one race. And race and religion were used very much as a, as a source of national unity, even though there was class diversity, and used to create um, external enemies that motivated war, motivated nationalism and uh, patriotism and all those sorts of things. The government said she was a national security risk and also had Bangladeshi heritage. But Bangladesh said, not our problem. Begum was left stateless. Well, now, on this morning's breaking news that the High Court has ruled that Shamima Begum should be allowed to return to the UK to challenge the decision to revoke her British citizenship. One of the areas where we need to um, think drastically is, is about Europe's relationship to race and religion and the way in which these things are uh, absolutely inherent to its psychic architecture. Um, unless we are able to conceive of Europe with, with a different sort of theological and racial architecture, I don't think it will be possible to reimagine Europe very considerably. Um, Certainly, it might not be easy to incorporate Turkey, for instance, into Europe or whatever. In recent years, there has been an increased debate over nationality law. One recent case is that of Shami Mabegum, who was stripped of her British citizenship after she left the country for Syria when she was 15. Although the court has recently ruled in favor of her return to face justice and fight for her right to citizenship, a case raises a complex question. Should a nation be allowed to withdraw nationality from its own citizens? After all, a nation-state has obligations that go far beyond bureaucratic processes and extend, as Timothy Snyder reminds us, into the realm of moral and ethics. The modern state both sets up a new problem and then can't solve it. So... Um, I mean, Tony, Tony Judd's book about post-war France, which was called, I, I think it was called Passé en Parfait in French, I'm not sure. It was called Past and Perfect in English. It was on the surface about uh, post-war, the post-war French left and their failure to understand communism. But it was deeply about this problem that if you think the rule of law is only, only applies to the citizens of the state, then it doesn't actually end up meaning anything at all. Because fundamentally, if it's, if it's, it will reduce down to a practical administrative relationship um, rather than, some, rather than a, a moral claim. The only way for the rule of law to mean anything is for it to rise to a level above that of the everyday relationship between the state 
and the citizen, because that will ultimately become repressive or administrative or, or trivial. And then in practice, the only way for the rule of law to be something which goes beyond a state is for it to be agreed upon among states, but also for it to be the subject of a discussion among societies that go across state borders. One answer to the point raised by Timothy Snyder is undoubtedly to be found in the arguments put forward by Lara Garcia Diaz at the beginning of this episode. As long as the concept of citizenship does not recognize and overcome the structural inequalities it has helped to maintain between different groups and genders, a successful change will not occur. So on a pragmatic level, as, as proposed by the question you just asked me, I think that the future of citizenship should be thought by addressing a series of reforms that highlight the number of inconsistencies in the forms our society is organized, so starting from that. So a form of citizenship that differentiates itself from the, let's say, nation-state citizenship or, or male citizenship uh, and moves towards one based on the demands of a politics of difference. And I guess uh, here, for me, is when education and culture turn fundamental in order to create spaces in which to address these inconsistencies within the idea of citizenship itself. For me, as we start to think about transnational identities that you're talking about, I think this is where we would start. We would think start thinking about the injustices inherent in a, in a system of citizenship that provide far more value to certain human beings than other human beings, almost like inherited property, but where there is absolutely no system of the redistribution of that privilege and where the accumulation of these inequalities um, has led to a certain kind of crisis with very, very material kinds of consequences. I think a lot of these things come together very interestingly in the question of the environment because um, one of the major things that is going to happen over the course of the coming decades is that the physical map of the world is going to change shape. We're going to lose several island states that simply will disappear under the ocean uh, and we're going to gain a lot of territory, for instance, in the Arctic regions which can allow people to move around territories but will create many new questions of, of citizenship. When a country disappears, what happens to its citizens? Do they, do they simply become absorbed into other nation states? Or do, do they acquire a kind of virtual citizenship? And if they do acquire a virtual citizenship, does that mean that all citizenship can be virtual and we can start to organize citizenship in, in, a, in a very different kind of way? Whether or not we are ready to shift our conception of citizenship, powerful forces are already at work. Technological advances, economic disparities or climate change are not just an invitation to change, they make change unavoidable. It is not easy to accompany change, 
However, desirable futures are possible. Only sometimes it is difficult to think of them. This is why we need spaces for imagination, where we can confront difficult questions and envision new scenarios. Let's now enter a space for imagination. Let's enter the European Pavilion. I love the idea of a pavilion because it's permanent and it's not permanent. You know, sometimes you build things for a pavilion and then you never take them down. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of Paris, a lot of the things that people admire about Paris were built to be temporary, but in fact, they're they're still there a hundred years more. And I also I also like the idea of a pavilion because a, a, a pavilion is necessarily inclusive of, of of variety. I guess if you're asking for what struck me about the idea, what struck me about the idea of a pavilion is that it off, it also offers a, it offers a form of protection. I think a pavilion has that virtue that. It can move things that were on the outside into the center. That's that's the thing that that's, that struck me. But I guess, like in a, in a broader, more metaphysical sense, what, what's nice about the idea of a of a European pavilion is that it 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 gives a sense of scale without dividing things up. If you think of if you think of European culture as a pavilion, then that gives you the sense to move things around and change them from year to year, and not having French always come from the French point of view and the the Dutch always come from the Dutch point of view. So I think the pavilion could be understood, in my opinion, in itself as a structure from where to coordinate diverse needs and urgencies, both the ones that you can detect, but also the ones that emerge during the construction of the structure itself. So in a sense, this idea of, of learning by doing, right? So a structure that already uh, since we have all these conversations, so already speaking up all these ideas and really trying to implement it in the construction of the structure itself. For example, also questioning the governance structure that will sustain decision-making processes. What will then exist outside of the formal apparatus of governments or, or even government? And working on the idea of citizenship through, for instance, thinking on how this structure could host the unrecognized. So, you know, here I see a huge potential, for instance, on the capacities that such structure may have to, for example, I don't know, maybe discover legal limbos, create forms of exchange that respond to specific needs. Um, the pavilion should be a platform in itself to put into practice everything we have been talking. Throughout history, the meaning and function of a pavilion have varied greatly. From a tent, a freestanding construction that provides shade and a place to rest, to a suburban dwelling or an exhibition space, pavilions have taken many shapes. The pavilion is an allegory and a space that opens up endless possibilities. It is a place to be imagined and built collectively. For me, as I say, I think it's very important that the pavilion map Europe in a way that um, we're not used to seeing. Well, in fact, with the pandemic, Brexit is somewhat in the background and there are people wondering whether it's even going to happen. But um, obviously, the idea of the EU border and how it would cross Ireland if uh, when Brexit were complete has been a massive debate here. We're very aware in this country of what the what the EU border looks like. It's a very high wall. 
I would want to imagine a European pavilion that constructs Europe in a different kind of way. It, it might look um, more oceanic with tides that flow in and out. It might look more like a network with uh, with nodes that are that that pull from way beyond the European uh, territory, um, and that reflect the the true sort of uh, immersion of Europe in the world. Uh, I would want to think about it um, starting from this this perspective of how how the geography of Europe might be made to look different. Um, of course. The, the oceans and the seas are one way that people have approached this, thinking about the Mediterranean or the Atlantic and the histories of those bodies of water. But I think in the, in the cybernetic age, we have other kinds of images um, for how, um, how mapping can behave that, that are quite interesting. I certainly think that flows of people um, are... Um, absolutely critical to our ethical imagination today. What would the European pavilion mean in the 21st century? What materials would it be made of? And most importantly, what could we find there? And to whom should it appeal? In our next episodes, we will continue to explore some of the questions we have been asking ourselves at the European Cultural Foundation while developing the idea of the pavilion. With this series of podcasts, we hope to enrich the ongoing debate on the future of Europe and in so doing, gather the materials to build the European pavilion. Mm-hmm.